Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most grisly, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland are examined and profiled. On this season, season three, the season premiere, relationship murders, or husband-wife, boyfriend-girlfriend, those type of murders are discussed analyzed and profiled on this season which is season three as in each episode an unsolved homicide in maryland will also get discussed and featured on this episode the harbortown resort romantic weekend getaway murder of stephen rico is profiled this episode's unsolved homicide examines the unsolved stabbing murder of 44 transgender dana richardson St. Michael's, Maryland, a small, quiet little town located in Talbot County on Maryland's eastern shore. With roughly only under 2,000 people living there, this town has a beautiful harbor where people come to vacation, they can canoe, they kayak, they fish, or just to relax and enjoy the scenery. Virtually crime-free, This town only has three schools and everybody is usually friendly and nice to each other. St. Michael's has fine dining, good restaurants, delicious crabs, amazing barbecues. The town is very pet friendly, especially the dogs. And most restaurants and businesses treat the dogs as guests. And they have a number of dog parks where dogs can run around and play with each other. Because of its relaxation and calm approach to life, The town is Maryland's best kept quiet secret. St. Michael's has a number of quaint and relaxing hotels, inns, and bed and breakfast spots where couples can relax. Harbortown Golf and Conference Center was a resort that catered to couples that many newlyweds and couples celebrating their wedding anniversaries, Valentine's Day events, stuff like that. They attended this resort often and the resort they had pool tables a fitness gym a, uh indoor pool an outdoor pool 18 holes to play golf it was surrounded by a lake if you know that was your thing to do it was a good place to go at to really relax and get away from the suburbs of maryland or the inner city in 1998 however St. Michael's was rocked with a sensational homicide that disrupted the quiet nature of this town. 32-year-old Kimberly Michelle Rico was miserably married. After nine years of marriage to her husband, 35-year-old Stephen Rico, their marriage was pretty much finito. Even though they had been college sweethearts and lived a comfortable, content, middle-class lifestyle in Lowell, Maryland, all that lovey-dovey stuff and that stuff died years ago 
And although Stephen was still very much in love with his wife, Kim was done and had mentally and physically checked out. The two had met when they were both students at Penn State and friends described the two as total opposites. While Steve was kind, peaceful, quiet, and a homebody, Kim was described as being more outgoing, more bubbly, more friendly, a social butterfly who liked to go out and party and be around people. Somehow the two fell in love, and in March of 1989, the couple got married. Steve got a job as a superintendent for various golf courses in western Pennsylvania, in Dundalk, Maryland, and at the Patuxent Green Country Club golf course near their home in Laurel, Maryland. Kim, she got a job as a certified surgical technician at Holy Cross Hospital and later at Suburban Hospital. The couple raised their daughter, who was the love of their life. After about five or six years of married life, Kim got bored and decided she just wanted out. She made no secret about how she was feeling and she told most of her friends and co-workers that she was extremely unhappy in her marriage and she was done with it. Yeah, she asked her husband for a divorce, but he refused to even consider the idea. Kim had an answer for that refusal, and she met a man who was 10 years younger than her at a friend's bridal shower. Even though this kid was only 23 years old to her age of 33, she started hooking up with this kid who was a Marine and stationed at the Pentagon. Anything to get out of her dead-ass marriage and she made it no secret on how she was feeling. She told any and everyone who would listen how miserably married she was and how much she wanted to get out of her marriage. Her talks with her co-workers went from wanting to get a divorce to wanting to get rid of her husband completely. After she approached one of her co-workers and asked him if he knew anybody that would solve her problem for $50,000, he made an offbeat suggestion that he would later come to regret. He said, you know, why don't you just put him to sleep with succinylcholine and he'll go to sleep forever. Well, succinylcholine. She told another co-worker that she planned to do exactly that. Meanwhile, Steve was thinking that their marriage was getting better because they had been going to marriage counseling together and they were talking about how they were getting along and they were talking and this and that. I feel she doesn't understand how deeply I love her. I mean, real love. I'm afraid I won't get the chance to make the marriage right, he wrote in his journal. He's thinking this while Kim was telling others that his touch was making her skin crawl. Yikes. To help them get the spark back in their marriage, a friend suggested to Steve that they get away from everything and spend a weekend at the Harbortown Resort Golf and Conference Center in St. Michael's as a romantic weekend getaway. Kim wasn't looking forward to spending time with her husband at all, but Steve couldn't wait. Nine days before they were due to leave, on February the 9th, 1998, Steve expressed how he felt by writing in his journal. Life at home is improving, and I am looking forward to Valentine's weekend at Harbortown with Kim. She called twice today and said I love you without me saying it first. I was very happy. Kim and I have not made love yet, and I want to, but I will wait as long as it takes. I love her. 
I believe I know what being in love really is. We have been married nine years, but I feel like we're just start, we just started dating. Now, Kim, she felt otherwise. Still telling friends that the thought of him touching her just made her want to throw up. And her mind was nowhere near, nowhere near romantic, on some romantic weekend getaway with her husband because the day before they left for their little trip, she sent her boyfriend a Valentine's Day gift package with a love note that read, I really wanted to give you all these gifts in person, but I guess the Pentagon had a different idea. I am so proud of what you do, so I'll just go on missing you. Have a nice weekend at home, baby. I look forward to seeing you soon. Happy Valentine's Day, sir. I love you so much. Hugs and kisses, Kim. Hmm. Now, on February the 14th, 1998, Valentine's Day, they set out for their little escapade to save their marriage, but Kim had another solution to her problem. They checked into cottage number 506 around 3 p.m., and part of their whole Valentine's Day weekend package deal at the resort was like a fancy dinner where they did like a whodunit mystery play. And the name of the play was called The Bride Who Cried, and it was about a bride who kills a groom by slipping something in his glass of champagne. After the wedding party makes a toast and he drinks the champagne, he, the groom drops dead to the floor. Um, the host of the play, they invites the audience members to decide on who they think the murderer is by getting their participation or whatever. So after the play was over, both Steve and Kim went to their rooms around 10.30 p.m. In their room, Kim later told the police that they watched the movie Tommy Boy, and in her words, Steven started pawing her and bugging her for sex. Now, that turned her completely off, as she said she only agreed to even go on the trip if there was no sex. She was like, no, which is kind of hard to understand because this was supposed to be some sort of romantic, let's save our marriage type of thing, and I don't know how that was going to happen without some sort of sex, especially during Valentine's Day. But anyway, according to Kim, they argued about her not having sex with him. And she got so mad that she decided to just leave the room. She said when she left, she left him looking at a porno magazine and smoking a backwood cigar, which she said is something that he always did when he drank. Kim says she drove around for more than two hours in the frigid cold cold looking for some looking for her friends who lived in the area but she said she got lost in the process because she wasn't familiar with the area she said she completely just gave up and just you know went back to the resort eventually hoping that he would already be asleep and not bugging her when she got back to the resort around 1 a.m she said she saw smoke coming from under her door Witnesses later said she calmly walked into the lobby of the hotel and was like, my room is on fire. That's when one of the resort guests and a member of the resort staff broke into their cottage. Once inside, they dragged Steve's body out and called 911. With his head and chest completely burned, when paramedics and police arrived on the scene, they discovered that a fire that looked like it had started near the bed had already burned itself out but Steve was pronounced dead at the scene. When detectives interviewed Kim as to what happened, 
She told the police the story that Steve had been drinking heavily during the dinner play, and when they got to their room, he started bugging her for sex. When she refused, they argued, and she left. She said that when she usually turned him down sexually, that he would go look at a porno magazine, smoke a cigar, and drink for relief. Maybe he drank too much and accidentally set himself on fire, she theorized. Plus, she insisted that he be cremated immediately. Now, the detectives punched holes all in her story. First off, they used dogs to sniff out the location and source of the fire, and their dogs determined that a liquid accelerant had been poured on the floor beside the bed where the fire started. Second, a medical examiner determined that Stephen didn't have any carbon monoxide in his blood or soot from the smoke or any burns in his trachea, throat, or lungs, so how could he have even been alive during the fire if he wasn't breathing before it started? Third, Kim said she, lost, she got lost for two hours driving around trying to find her friends. Really? I mean, you couldn't just call him or even call him for directions or even let them know you were lost? And lastly, Stephen already had a $200,000 life insurance policy on him. Shortly before he was burned to death, Kim had taken another $250,000 life insurance policy on his life. Plus, when the detectives interviewed Stephen's friends and family, they were all like, he don't even smoke, especially no cigars. The medical examiner, they couldn't find, he couldn't find no cause as to why Stephen would just suddenly just stop breathing. I mean, there was no heart attack, no alcohol poisoning, no drug overdoses, like nothing to come up with, nothing to come up with other than a conclusion that he must have been poisoned. And he must have been poisoned with something before the fire because Kim worked right in the operating room. I mean, she did have access to the powerful drug, succinylchlorine. The detectives determined that she must have injected him with this drug or something which causes you to be immobile. Now, according to Wikipedia, um, according to Wikipedia, succinylchloride, if I'm pronouncing it right, um, it can be detected in a matter of minutes and it paralyzes the diaphragm and causes you to stop breathing if admitted improperly. If whoever takes this drug d don't get help immediately, you could die from it. The drug is usually used to cause short-term like numbness or causes you to be paralyzed for a short period of time and is, is used as part of a general anesthesia during surgery. It's white, it's odorless, and it's very easily dissolved in water. After three months of intense investigation and questioning, of back, questioning Kim back and forth, you know, of playing this dance of who did it and why and this, that, and the third, prosecutors, prosecutors finally had enough evidence to arrest Kim and charge her with Stephen's murder. To make her look even more suspicious, before she was arrested, she tried some little feeble suicide attempt by swallowing a bunch of prescription pills that did nothing but get her a trip to the emergency room and then to a psychiatric hospital. After she was stabilized and brought back to normal, the police were waiting with handcuffs. St. Michael's got all the media attention from this high-profile homicide, and the local press called the trial several names like the murder mystery weekend killing and the dinner theater slaying. Throughout it all, 
Kim maintained her innocence and her lawyers argued to a jury that Stephen, he could have accidentally set himself on fire because he was drunk. But that theory was shot down when the medical examiner testified that he had no alcohol in his system. Then the defense was like, oh, he could have committed suicide because he was depressed because she said no sex and his marriage was dying. I mean, come on, y'all, y'all know he was reaching. Really? I, I don't think I know anybody that's going to kill themselves because of no sex. But anyway, they couldn't even say how he supposedly committed suicide. The prosecution came hard. They brought up the life insurance policies. They brought up the fact that Kim not only had access to drugs that could take this man out, it's what she do. It's what she helped do for a living. And plus, all of her friends and her co-workers, including the kid she was screwing, they all testified against her in court, saying that she talked about how miserable and how unhappy she was in her marriage and how much she wanted her husband gone. They even had a clerk in a, ner- a nearby store testify that Kim was the one who brought the backwards cigars and it wasn't Steve. I mean, what a mess. Kim never testified in her defense and after a five-day trial of going back and forth with the foolishness, lies, and the bullshit, the jury convicted her of first-degree murder and first-degree arson after only three hours of deliberation. At her sentencing hearing on March 20th, 1999, Stephen's mother was allowed to give a victim impact statement, and she said that her son's death was devastating to everyone and that nothing has been the same. My husband can't talk about him without crying, she said. When asked if she had anything to say before she received her sentence, Kim said, I feel so sorry for all the the sorrow and loss they endured, and I pray every day that they can find peace. The judge showed Kim zero mercy and sentenced her to life in prison plus 30 years. Because of the sensationalism, Kim's story has been featured on Snapped, on the Oxygen Network, Secrets of the Morgue on Investigation Discovery, Forensic Files on Court TV, and Deadly Women on TV One. Now, a book of, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if that's TV One, but on Deadly Women. A book about the case entitled An Act of Murder, written by author Linda, Linda Rosencrantz, was also written for this murder case. Kim, who has never admitted guilt and maintains her innocence in this case like an idiot, she writes for an online platform that publishes material and words by people who are incarcerated. Online, she has a piece published where she's complaining about not being able to physically hold her new granddaughter, or she writes about her fantasy of being innocent. I am so frustrated. Here I sit in my cell with a sentence of life plus 30 concurrent, and I am innocent. Blah, 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 blah. (laughs) In 2018, Harbortown closed permanently and was replaced and renamed. Now, this homicide was notorious, first off, because it was the only crime, the only homicide ever reported in St. Michael's. Just for that reason alone. That's how small and quiet this little town is in Maryland. Um, And she really set it off with this one right here. I mean, she thought she got away with it, but she couldn't keep her mouth shut. Maybe if 
she hadn't done all of the planning or all of the, oh, I want him dead, all I want him killed, and, you know, I can't stand him, and blah, blah, blah. All of that to her friends and family who she thought understood or were riding with her. You know, just by chance, maybe she could have got away with it. You know, especially using a drug that's going to paralyze somebody. But to have him burnt in a fire, you know, that's cruel, don't you think? Her story was was full of holes. It was. It's no way you're gonna talk that up um, about wanting somebody gone so much, and then all of a sudden it just happens, and you have nothing to do with it. Just, just you know, it just it didn't fly. I mean, hopefully, you know, he didn't suffer in none of this, you know. But who's to say and who's to know? Um, and it just it just seems like, you know. Yes, she was miserably married or whatever. I mean, she was screwing a dude that was 10 years younger than her, basically a kid. She was, I don't know if it was a phase or whatever, but either way, to handle it like this, to drug somebody and burn them up alive, wow. I mean, there was no love there. She didn't care about him suffering or anything like that. And it seems like, you know, as the you know reports have said, that he was truly in love with her. I mean, they were uh, college sweethearts and... They built up a family and a history together, and at some point in time, she just couldn't take it no more and was just, you know, sick of it and wanted out. Um, I believe if there's ways to go about getting out of a marriage versus, you know, even if someone does not agree to give you a divorce, there's ways of getting a divorce if you really want one, but not, you know, drugging somebody with a drug that's going to paralyze you and setting them on fire is definitely not the way to go um she's been locked up now for over 20 years and still lying still lying some people just never going to change they're just never going to change i mean 20 years and she's complaining about how she can't hold her granddaughter and in one article i read she's actually holding her granddaughter but um that's another story but either way, you know, I, I feel sorry for um, his family. I feel sorry for they had a nine-year-old daughter, um, eight or nine-year-old daughter, who was caught up in all of this when his, her father was killed. Um, it's just a sad story all around. And, you know, it's, it's just this was a sensational, notorious case that rocked the St. Michael's that, you know, people that are from there still talk about it to this day for this season season three each unsolved homicide will profile two victims who were transgender while conducting my research on unsolved hom on unsolved victims in maryland i was completely alarmed completely shocked at the number of transgender victims where absolutely like nothing was done no investigating no question of family members nothing it was like they got killed and it was completely and totally ignored the cop showed up on the scene the body the body was transported and taken away and that was it you know i i was alarmed at the number of transgender victims in not just the city of Baltimore, but in Maryland, period. Like, that, are not even reported, not even talked about. I, I was, I was uh, completely alarmed. So for this season, season three, the spotlight will be on homicide victims who were transgender. On this episode, 
the this episode's unsolved homicide is the stabbing death of 44-year-old Dana Richardson. On June 7, 2009, at around 11 a.m., 44-year-old Dana Richardson was found stabbed to death in her apartment in the 900 block of Brooks Lane in Reservoir Hill. Dana, who was born a male but lived her life as a transgender woman, was found beside her bed kneeling in a praying position. Dana was pretty much a happy person, outgoing, had a good spirit, jovial. She was always well accepted by everybody in the family and well loved. She was happy being who she was and we loved her all the more for it, her sister told a reporter for the Afro newspaper. My mother and father had a big heart and they had good spirits and that was their child. My parents accepted her from day one as she was and treated her like the individual that she was. We all did. We love her unconditionally, she continued. Dana reportedly loved to dance and sing and she was well known in Baltimore's LGBTQ club scene. She was very popular at the gay clubs. Dana was a singer. She had a great voice and a couple of times she performed at the Artscape as her idols, Diana Ross and Billie Holiday. That was her passion, her sister said. Dana did suffer from heroin addiction and she was HIV positive. She had been planning to enroll in a drug treatment program that Monday, but unfortunately, someone took her life. I may have been the last family member to see her alive before she passed away. I saw her that Friday and went to her house and she was really sick. In her final stages of her illness, she was so small. She was so defenseless because of her illness, so it was senseless to take her life for whatever reason. To me, it was like killing an elderly person. You could have taken the money and walked away, a sister continued. Because there was no sign of forced entry and because of the way she was found, the detectives didn't really think that Dana's murder was a hate crime. Her sister told reporters that Dana's neighbors told the detectives that in the days leading up to her death, that they saw her with some men they never seen at her apartment. I think Dana may have invited in someone she knew very well to go out and buy drugs for her because she couldn't go out to get them herself. Her check came that week. I think the person knew Dana had money and tried to take her money. If Dana were alive today, she would probably be an advocate for the LGBTQ community because she was always telling people it's okay to come out and it's okay to be you, a sister said. At first, Dana's murder case was moving along, and the detectives had identified a person of interest, but there wasn't enough evidence to hold this person. That person was released and later moved to Florida, where the investigation stalled. Her family believes that Dana may have known her killer. People, this is a 13-year-old crime that deserves to be solved, just like any others. I can't believe the people that are basically just waiting, you know, I can't, I mean, I, I can't believe the police are just basically waiting for physical evidence to fall just out of the sky or something. But if you have inf any information at all that can lead to an arrest or a conviction in this homicide, please call detectives at 410-396-2100 or 1-866-7-LOCKUP.
You can also submit a tip online at www.metrocrimestoppers.org or you can text a tip to 443-902-4824. You can remain anonymous, people. I mean, somebody has to know something. Seriously, this is like, they deserve, they deserve any type of treatment like any other homicide case. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling and bizarre episodes. Also, please be sure to check out all of the other true crime books that are related to this podcast, such as Marilyn's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Marilyn's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and the upcoming release, Marilyn's Most Notorious Murders, 2009-2020. All of these books are available on Amazon.com as well as all of my other True Life books. Please be sure to tune in next week where another high-profile homicide will be examined and profiled on Marilyn's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a real life production.